Hello, and welcome once again to the Primitive Church Podcast. You've probably seen the bumper sticker, t-shirt, or poster that says, Jesus is coming, look busy. But you don't need to look busy because your work, made hard by the fall and redeemed by Christ, can last into eternity, purified by God. So don't look busy, be busy. Teaching team member David McNeely continues the series, What Do You Work For? Your Part in a Larger Story, with this message entitled, The Hero Returns, Work is Renewed. Thank you for joining us today. We are in a series, that series is on work, and Bob Cargo kicked us off on the series for week one, and he talked about the fact that work is good. And the reason work is good is because God created work. It was in his mind from the very beginning. It's not something that came as a result of the fall. It was a part of the original design that God created human beings with the capacity to carry out work and to carry out in great quantities. And I don't think that that we would have never gotten tired, although some theologians believe that. I don't think that's the case. I I think that we would have gotten tired in one sense in our work because it was was the way God designed it. There There was work and there was rest. There was work. And there was rest. There was this work-rest cycle, and it was all done in perfect balance. And when God looked at the world, he went, that is good. Now, part of that goodness is watching Adam and Eve do exactly what he had called them to do, and that is to mine the earth's potential, bringing out everything that he longed there uh, for us to make. It started out in a garden. It was always going to go to a city, though. So he was busy giving folks uh, different uh, gifts and skill sets and things that they enjoyed and, and, and things that they could do. And, and, and not everyone can do everything. That's not a result of the fall. That's plan all along was to give us different skills and different things that we love to do. And, and so that was working in great relationship because they were working as unto the Lord. And so God gave us directions to work in. First, it was designed to be in cooperation with him. He gave us all the ingenuity, all the, the, the creativity that we needed, and he asked us to carry out this work. And when we carried out this work, knowing that we were working unto him, unto his glory, there would be this deep-seated satisfaction in our work. There would be no need for us to have our identity wrapped up in our work. There would just be, ah, we're doing the work that we're called to do, and it's satisfying. And at the same time, what would be happening is we're honoring God with our work, we're deeply satisfied, but it would always be for the flourishing of the whole community. Meaning that the good or service that I could provide to you would benefit you in some way. Now, I don't know what that looked like originally. I don't know if there was ever this design. To, I don't know. I just know that somehow or another there was mutual benefit that was taking place, not just between humans, but between the whole earth. So the earth was enjoying the fact that humans were there. The earth was glad. The animals were glad. They were walking up to Adam. What's my name? What's my name? And Adam and Eve would name them, and they would go on. There was this great harmony, but then what we said is that work became hard. This is what happened in week two of this series. Work became hard because they took from the fruit, and they ate from the fruit. God put the tree there to remind them, this world is not yours, it's mine. You are here to steward it. You are here to take care of it. You're here to mine it, but it's not yours. And so taking matters into their own hands, what happened was this relationship right here got so distorted, it got marred, the image was no longer clear and understandable. They ran away from God, believing that God would now come, and he was after them. He was the one that wanted to to harm them in some manner. And so the God that was the father who had created them, who had protected them, who had provided for them, they now saw as the enemy. And they ran away. 
And they hid in every sense of the word. And then they pointed the finger at one another. It wasn't just this relationship that was broken, this understanding right here of who they are. They now tried to find their identity in so many other places outside of who God made them to be. It affected this relationship here as well. Adam and Eve began to clash even early on. I mean, the, the, the first children that were here on the earth, one of them killed the other one. Killed. Not just an argument. Killed. The creation itself also now fought back against mankind. The animals are now afraid of us. The environment is now acting in rebellion against us. Thorns and thistles came about. This was a part of the curse that God gave, that there was now going to be hard, hard work. It was not designed to be at that level of difficulty. It was designed to be enjoyed. There was cooperation that was taking place, but now because of sin, death came everywhere. And everywhere across the cosmos, there is now a curse. Nothing is easy. Raising children is not easy. Going to school is not easy. Healing broken bones is not easy. Teaching people to read is not easy. Everything is difficult now because of the fall. There is not one single aspect of all of human existence that is not affected by the fall, and yet we're still not as bad as we could be. Even Hitler probably loved to some degree. Stalin probably loved someone to some degree. We're not as bad as we possibly could be. It's just that there's nothing in our lives that is not affected by this sin. We exploit people. We abuse people. We take advantage of people. We exploit and abuse the environment. We no longer want an accountable relationship with God. We want an autonomous relationship. And all of life is just hard. Jesus, however, said that's not good enough. So Jesus entered into human existence. He took on a body. He became flesh. He did for Adam what Adam could not do. He obeyed God perfectly. There was not one single moment in which he ever sinned in word, thought, or deed. There was no motive that he had that was askew. Everything he did was for the glory of God. Every moment of his existence has been done for the glory of the Father. And Jesus got it right. He fulfilled all of the demands and the requirements of the law. And then Jesus went to a cross, and he died on a cross. So his active obedience, that which he did, enables you and I now to live in a manner that is consistent with him. It's his power. It's his spirit that brings that power to us. It was his death over here. His passive obedience and all of the wrath that God poured out on him that, that, that satisfied the demands of the law when Jesus or when God said, if you take the fruit, you're going to die. So Jesus, the hero, showed up on the scene. He did for us what we could have never, ever, ever done for ourselves. And the only way that we can ever be made right with God is to look at him and say, I'm placing all of my eggs in the basket of Jesus. If it's not true that Jesus paid for my sins, then I'm in deep weeds because there's nothing I can do to get myself out of this predicament and out of this scenario. And so we throw our hands up in the air. We surrender the controls of our lives over and say, God, I'm yours. Do with me as you please. I want to go back to this relationship of accountability rather than autonomy. I know I won't do it to perfection. I know I will struggle. But this is the desire of my heart. God redeems. He renews. He restores our very souls. But that is not the end of the story because Jesus then, in the midst of his disciples, after he was raised from the dead, he ascends back into heaven. They're all standing up in the sky. They're just kind of looking around. And then the angels come in and they say, why are you standing here looking in the sky? And then they say this, he's coming again. 
And I don't think they fully understood right then in the book of Acts what was going on. They just saw that he was there. The hero had come. Now the hero is gone. And then they hear these words, he's coming again. And in their excitement, they can barely contain the fact that he's no longer dead. He hasn't been trapped. Death hasn't overcome him. He has overcome death. They're so excited. They don't understand all the ramifications of this. So he goes back, and then he tells his people on many occasions, I'm coming back. Trust me. And when I come back, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us back to the garden, not literally a garden where there's going to be a tree and we're going to go back and and we're not going to have building. Not that. I'm going back to the environment of the garden to where everything will be restored and renewed. Everything. Jesus died both a physical and a spiritual death. And his redemption accomplishes both a physical and a spiritual redemption. And it does it for people, for places, and for things. It's not just the human soul that Jesus died for. He died to bring about redemption to places, literal uh, physical places. It's one of the reasons why we at Perimeter here, we're focused on trying to do um, that which is in a a proximity of 9500 Medlock Bridge. We want to affect this location. We want to bring redemption to this area, to, to these places. It's not just souls. It's actually places themselves. It's not just souls and places. It's actually things. Think about this. And I can't remember which theologian gave this example. Somebody gave it, and, and, and I, I trust them. They, they did a good job. Trees. Trees were created by God. They are under the curse, meaning sometimes trees can be used for noble purposes, and sometimes trees can be used for evil purposes. Trees can be used to build certain things. It can be used to build furniture so that you and I can rest. We can eat at a, at a table. We can gather around. It can also be used to build weapons. Trees are also used to put paper on. You and I have benefited our, the very word itself that we're reading this morning. If you brought your physical Bible, benefited because of a tree. A tree can also be used to produce hate literature. It can be used to produce pornography. It can be used to produce a whole lot of, of, of evil. Jesus came not just to redeem your soul, to redeem the purpose of that tree. So that that tree will never again be used in a manner that is not consistent with God's plans, his desire. It is to be used in a creative manner to mine the potential so that it will point to his glory. And the tree is glad to be used that way. Right now, it fears us. I don't don't want to go all Lord of the Rings on you and think there's trees that are walking and talking. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that there is the, the, the whole of creation is fearful of us. I asked some of you, asked many of you, all who would, who would write in and share with us where you see some of the effects of the fall and where you see signs of redemption. Many of you did that. And I want to read just a couple of these here just to give you an idea. Um, you see it every day in your workplace. One person wrote, I see the inability or fear of sharing pertinent information for the good of all on a sales team. A new one. Not by leadership, but by workers hiding what should be an aid or help towards one another for the greater good. It is the need to be first individually that causes us to move forward at a snail's pace organizationally. Communication could be repaired. I like this one. At school, we do not see ourselves as manifestations of God's glorious brilliance, learning about his world, ourselves, and tidbits of his wisdom. We continue to fracture our relationship with the Lord at school because of ignorance by striving for our own glory. An A plus for me, 
winning the state championship for me, and giving the glory to God much later on, if at all. We forget that it is by his selfless love we live, and by his grace we can accomplish things as stewards of our gifts. I want you to hear these last two, because they combine both these thoughts. There seems to be a core desire to make a difference in the lives of our clients, but there is such a basis of fear which rides under everything. The ownership creates this culture, and employees have learned to protect themselves. The fear, I think, comes from a deep insecurity, a lack of confidence in what we do and how we are gifted to do it. I see signs of the fall everywhere. Customers can be angry over minuscule things. So can employees. A Christian employee has a continually downcast countenance and attitude despite knowing Christ. Some portions of the public with an agenda have attacked the biblical precepts of this company. Employers who do not follow through on promises, that would be helpful. People complain about serving the public. Our feet hurt from standing on them so long. All of these things I see as a result of the fall, but I also see Jesus at work. I see kindness in believers toward others. I see servant leadership. I have been involved in sharing the answer with someone recently at work. I've been told that others see Jesus in me. Amazing. I see that the company's Christian structure and foundation affects positively even those who have no clue who he is. We said that there is a redemptive and a restorative view that you and I now have with work, that we partner with God in this work, that we are jumping on board with him to bring about the restoration and renewal of all things. I thought about showing this video last week, but then I thought, I think it fits better right here for you and I to see it. In our own midst, a member of our congregation is going after this in a very real and tangible way. Turn your attention to the screens and watch how he's working in a redemptive and restorative manner. I'm Doug Guess, and I, I'm a CFO. I typically work for private equity-backed businesses um, where investors have invested capital, and um, I move around typically in a financial or an operational role. My call is to lift up the community. My call is to be a, um, my call is to be a follower of Christ. For me, I'm trying to take the skills that I have to build businesses and think about how I can help with employment. My family and I have worked with refugees for a number of years now. In my current role here at DocuFree, we had entry-level employment opportunities for potentially refugees. It could be anyone, but I saw the opportunity to bring refugees into my current company. So, you know, fairly quickly after I came on board, I looked for opportunities to hire folks. And when I did, I approached the refugee community and hired a number of people who work here today. We've hired almost 40 people uh, from that community. It really provides them an opportunity for restoration. So if you think about God's story of redemption, it's really an opportunity to redeem these folks again that have spent five to seven years in a refugee camp. They've got an opportunity to be a member of society and contributing and they see opportunity for potential advancement. It really relates to just a small piece of kind of God's redemptive story to redeem these folks and provide justice for them. If we're to love our neighbor, and that, you know, this is the greatest commandment is to love God and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. Focusing on the relationships, that it's not you know, faith over here and work over here, but we have relationships in both of those places. And if we're, gonna, if, we're, if we're to carry out that great commandment to love our neighbor, 
It really is about the relationship, and you have relationships at work. I see my job as a ministry. I see it as an opportunity to provide um, love and leadership and relationships where people feel respected, bringing that great commandment into the workplace. I wanted to show that because I think that points us to where we want to head this week and spend the remaining amount of time we have. Next week, Bob Cargo will come and finish this series out looking at just some very real practical ways that we go about this every day. But what that video shows me is that here's a guy that is, is intentionally using the skill set that he has, how God wired him, the knowledge that he has, the desire he has. I am so thankful God made these people in the world called CFOs. Those that look at numbers, they crunch numbers, they understand how this positions here. I am so thankful to do it because I can barely balance my own checkbook. So those of you that are out there, praise God for you. He is using his skill set to bring healing. To bring healing to a group of people, to, to have them engage in meaningful work that they can invest themselves in a worthy cause. They can go home at the end of the day knowing they've had an honest day's work. They can say, ah, this was good. They can provide for the needs of their family, and they can also in turn invest in the needs of those in their community. They can provide a service or a good that, that is beneficial for all those who will purchase it or buy it, use it. He is helping to restore what it is that God intended. But now here's where we differ. What he's doing, what you and I are called to do right now is to partner with God to bring about healing. There is coming a time, though, in which Jesus is going to come to the earth and we no longer have to partner with him to bring healing. It's all healed. We don't have to restore anything because it's all restored. We don't have to renew anything because it's all been renewed. There's coming a time in which Jesus is going to set it back. He's going to return us to the garden, and you and I will simply just see others in the light that we all long to be seen. We will see someone else, and we will say, here's an opportunity to help this person. Here's an opportunity to give what this person may need. Here's an opportunity to do something for them, and they will view us in the exact same way. You and I will no longer be exploited or abused or neglected. We'll be included. We'll be embraced. We'll be accepted. And we will just naturally do the same with others. You have your Bibles. Open with me to Revelation. We're going to look at just a few passages this morning. Revelation 20, uh, 22 is where we'll start out. We'll eventually get to Revelation 21, 2 Peter and then Romans. But I wanted to start here in Revelation 22 to give us a picture of what this is going to look like um, in the end. And so if you will allow me just for a moment here, I want to get all theological on you. Right? I want to get, I'll talk just strictly about the return of Christ, his imminent return. What's going to happen when we have this thing called the new heaven and the new earth? So Revelation chapter 22, I'm begin reading in verse 1. John is writing, there's an angel that's revealing things to him. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer 
will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and there will be no night or, or no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. He gets this picture, this glimpse of the future, in which he is seeing what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. And he sees this river that's flowing through it. And he sees these things on either side. And he sees that healing has been accomplished and it's been done. And then he says that there is no longer going to be a curse that stretches anywhere. Right now where you and I live, there is no place we can look where we cannot see the effects of the curse. And here, there's nowhere where we will look where we will see any curse. There will be complete peace and harmony amongst all who are in this kingdom. All will live in an, in an accountable relationship right here, but the accountability that we have is not an accountability like you and I picture right now where someone is asking us to do something and then they stay on us and, and you can only um, expect what is inspected and so you come back again. It's not that kind of accountability. It's just that we long to live lives in which God is the center of it. And then it says this, and I want this thought to sit for just a moment. They will see his face. You remember there are others in the Old Testament that asked, God, can I see your face? And what was his answer to them? No. You couldn't handle seeing my face. If you were to see it, then you would die. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you see my back. I'm going to put you right over in here into this little place, and I'm going to put my hand over you, and, and I'm going to pass by. And even in passing by, that's a little dangerous because that might be overwhelming for you, but I'll give you just a little glimpse of my back. Right here, though, we will be in the presence of God. You and I will no longer have a moment of our lives where we're looking around saying, where is God in all this? We no longer look at the effects of a tornado that has ravaged through a city that has taken the lives of people. We will no longer look at a place where a school is in operation and children are hiding, cowering in fear, and because this natural disaster comes through and wipes it all out. You and I aren't looking at that anymore, looking around saying, where is God? You and I are living in a city where there is complete peace and harmony amongst all. We're looking and saying, oh, there he is. This is the city that we have longed for. This is the environment that's been deep within our souls. That which we were striving so hard to bring in on the earth, it was so difficult. It was in rebellion against us. But this, alas, is what we were built for. God will be on his throne and I don't think that it's necessarily a literal throne that it's talking about right here in Revelation where he's sitting up like a king would sit here and, and he's kind of there eating grapes and we're fanning him and, and he's stepping back. It's the, the fact that he is in charge. There is nothing here that doesn't reflect him. Jesus is sitting in the rightful place where he stands in the solitude of himself. It's because of his work that all of this is even possible. Do you long for the new heavens? Do you long for a new earth? Do you long for a place like this where your work itself will be of great value to you? I want to make three observations about the return of Christ um, and, and then apply this towards our specific workplace. Jeff Van Duzer, I'm just ripping this from him in his book, which I've talked about, I think, every week. 
his book, uh, Why Business Matters to God, or Your Business Matters to God. That's terrible. I can't remember the title, but I've been reading it cover to cover. In his book, he writes, and it's very simple in this one particular chapter. It was profound for me, and so I want to use this as it applies towards, um, towards our workplace. First, God will alone will usher in the new kingdom. It will be God who is ushering in this new kingdom. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about how it is that we partner with God as we usher in this new kingdom. I don't want to back off of that statement. God has called us to, to, to partner with him. And in that sense, he is using us. And he is using us in a manner, and which we'll talk about this in a second, in which this will be used even for all uh, of eternity. But it is God who will do the work. It is God who is driving the ship. It is God who is taking the initiative. It is God who will supply the power. It is God's ingenuity, his creativity. It is God is the one who will bring in his kingdom. It was his idea from the beginning. He knows exactly how to usher it in. And so it takes the pressure off of you and I to think that we have to create this environment on this world that is ideal. It keeps us in balance between idealism over here, thinking that we're going to create this world in which all of the world now is going to reflect the values of the kingdom of God. Believe it or not, it's shocking for us to think of that in terms of nowadays. But years ago, before the First World War in America, this was the predominant thought of theologians and average churchgoers. That we were headed towards a society that was going to be so reflective of God's kingdom that he would just kind of step down because it's just about like it's going to be anyway for all eternity. And then World War I happened. And several people backed off of that mindset. And then World War II happened. And virtually everyone backed off that mindset and went, you know what, we're really not that great. And then the internet happened, and we see sin all over the globe now, and there's hardly any of us around that are thinking, yeah, we're going to usher in this kingdom ourselves. It, understanding that God alone will usher it in keeps us in this balance. It keeps us away from idealism, but it also keeps us away from cynicism. The cynical view is, it doesn't matter. I mean, let's not polish the brass on the ship that's sinking. Let's just step back. Let's remove ourselves from all of culture. Let's not get involved in what they're doing. Let's create our own separate systems. Let's do our own thing in our own way. Let's let all of them go to hell in a handbasket, and let's just come back, and let's do what it is that we're going to do for the amount of time that we're here. We're just buying our time anyway until Jesus returns, and, and then we'll do what it is that we really long to do. Knowing that God will usher this in, knowing that God has called us to participate with him, to work alongside of him, to partner with him, keeps us both from idealism, and it keeps us from cynicism. Secondly, God will judge and purify our work. We'll look at this in just a second, so I'm not going to sit on this second point very long because we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the third one, but uh, God is going to judge and purify um, our work. He is going to look at every deed that it is that you and I have done he will examine each of them individually. And I don't understand how all of this works. And the scriptures indicate this, though. He's going to look at our work. He's going to make judgments about that work. And then what he's actually going to do is purify it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to renew it. He's going to make it all right. The things that you and I did in the power of the flesh that were clearly for the destruction of others, the times in which we have exploited, abused, neglected, etc., all of that will go away. The things that we've done to partner with him, even right now when we still can't be completely wiped away and completely devoid of some level of selfish motivation that's in there, that will be purified. 
Knowing this gives me the motivation to work with eternity in view. Knowing that God will look at all this gives me a mindset that helps me understand it's about working for something down the road. It's not just right here. It's about working for something greater. Third point, so I want to spend the bulk of our time. God will adopt and transform our purified work for divine purposes. God will adopt and transform our purified work for divine purposes. Now, I won't look at all of the views in here, um, but, I, but I do want to look at two in particular that have been the more predominant views um, throughout Christianity um, historically um, about what's going to happen to the earth, um, to everything when Christ returns. Two, two um, dominant views. The first view is an annihilationist view. What that view basically says is this. When Christ returns, everything is going to get lit on fire. It's going to be destroyed. Everything's going to go away, and God's going to bring in a new heaven, a new earth. He's going to start from scratch, and he's going to build this thing back to the way it was supposed to be. That is one view that is, uh, in many ways, a more popular view in today's culture in America. Uh, I think there is some reason in the Scriptures to believe that. I think folks can come there by looking at the Scriptures and, uh, and, and reading that. I, however, do not adhere to this particular view. I adhere to the other view, and the other view states this, that God is going to somehow or another adopt in, in many ways and at the same time um, uh, uh, create things new. So he's going to adopt what this earth is. He's going he's to have it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to restore it. He's going to renew it. So in other words, it won't be that the earth is actually burned up. It won't be that there's going to be this, this cosmic flame that takes place and the whole of the, of, the, of the universe is gone in existence and then God starts over. What he's actually doing is when he created it, it was good. And then sin entered into the picture, and so there were effects of it. And so now what he's going to do is remove all the effects of those. And so many things will be burned up. Many things will go away. Many things will be removed permanently. Many things will be erased. But yet what he has here, he's not just abandoning totally. A theologian named Hukama gives us uh, some wonderful reasons by which to believe this. And I want to just walk you through these. Four reasons to believe in the, the latter view, or if you want to call it this, the, uh, the adoption uh, view fact, let's do this. Go to Revelation 21 right here. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth, first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Hookham makes this point, and others like him have made this point as well. A guy named Williams who wrote a book called Far As the Curse is Found. Um, uh, Whitmer makes this. There's many other theologians that make this same point, and, and, and this is where I tend to fall out as well. The word that is used here for new, new heaven, new earth, is not a word that is used oftentimes in the Bible in other circumstances for new as in origin. It's a word that's new, used new for renewed. 
Meaning where something is, is brought to um, its best, it's brought to its ultimate completion, it's brought to the, the, um, the ultimate design that it has. An example of this, when Christ talks about the new covenant, this is the new covenant in my blood, he is not saying that everything from the past is done away with. What he's saying is that everything from the past is now ultimately fulfilled. All of that which it was pointing towards is pointing towards this. Now, are there things about that old covenant that are done away with? Absolutely. There's no longer a need, for example, for the, 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 the sacrifice of animals. But this covenant that Jesus has is not new as in there is, it had never been in existence before. It is the ultimate fulfillment of everything he had pointed to in the past. Same word used for the New Testament. Does the New Testament eradicate everything in the Old Testament? Or does it fulfill everything in the Old Testament? See, this word that is used here, it's going to be used again in in, uh, 2 Peter uh, 3, which we'll look at in just a second. This word does not, I don't think, leads us to believe that God is going to destroy everything and start over. I think it's leading us to believe that he's going to take everything that's here that has been affected and he's going to make it right. That's the first reason that uh, Hukamah gives us to believe. It's there. The second reason is that creation itself is groaning for freedom and not death and replacement. Guys, I'm going to hold off on 2 Peter, and I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Romans 8 gives us this indication. Look at Romans 8 with me and go down to uh, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing... For the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await adoptions as Son, the redemption of our bodies. Creation itself is groaning out towards God, saying, God, liberate us. Remove the effects of the fall from us. If God was going to start over, if he was going to wipe all of this out, then what creation would be groaning for is, go ahead and kill me. But instead, what the Scriptures indicate for us is that the, script, that the, the creation is saying, Oh, God, I can't wait till I'm renewed, till I'm restored. I can't wait to be free from this present bondage that I'm living in. I think that's a great understanding of this passage. The third reason, since there is both continuity and discontinuity of our bodies, there is reason to think the same is true for the earth. Remember when Jesus was raised from the dead? When Jesus was raised from the dead, he had a very similar look to what he had before. Now, I don't understand this fully on the road to Emmaus where the guys didn't recognize him until the end and then he opened his eyes. But I don't think that they couldn't recognize him because his body was so radically different. His body was perfected, but I don't think it was a completely different thing. If our bodies are going to be renewed, if our bodies are going to be restored if they're going to be uh, uh, brought back to the place where they function to its best. We have every reason to believe that the earth would follow suit as well. I love the fact that you and I in the heaven will no longer worry about whether or not we're going to break a bone. We just bungee jump. We just take whatever it is that we do, whatever, however it is we play, we just go for it. The final reason that Hukama gives uh, in there as to why it is that we should 
um, uh, uh, take this adoption view. If God had to destroy the world, what a great victory that would have been for Satan. Satan would have stood and said, yeah, I got it. But the victory was actually Jesus's. It was Jesus who overcame death. It was Jesus who overcame the effects of the fall. It's Jesus who, who won the victory, not the devil himself. And so those four reasons are just four of the reasons why I look at this and say, I believe there's great reason for us to think that the earth will be renewed, it will be restored. Remember the flood? This is what I want to look at last. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. But go all the way back to... Uh, Peter is talking about the day of the Lord that's coming. Go look. Go to verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But the same word of the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord one day, with the Lord one day, as is a thousand years and a thousand years one gone by, the Lord is now, is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He gives us this picture of the flood first. There's the flood that destroyed the world, but it didn't completely take the world away. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives and holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the day, uh, the, hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He tells us that there's going to come this time in which fire is going to set it ablaze. And the backdrop, though, is this talk about the flood. I think the best way for us to understand this in the ESV, um, I did not see it. Does it say it correctly? It says that things will be laid bare. It's the best way for, under, for us to understand this. What it's talking about here, the fire and the destruction, is talking about the judgment of God. It's talking about God coming and looking at all the deeds that have been done. They will all be exposed before the Lord. Everything done in darkness and in light will now be in full, plain sight of God. He will come. He will judge it. He will, he will set fire to it. And those things which must pass away for all of eternity, those things which were not done, empowered by the Spirit, those things which did not honor God, will be destroyed completely, forever taken away and forgotten. But those things that have been done will be purified, and there's reason for us to believe that they will be taken to the remainder of glory. So let me close it out this way by, by telling you this and see if this... Um, See what this does for you. You and I have great reason to believe that there are things that will be done right now on this earth that will be taken into heaven and will last for all of eternity. 
Those things that are done, and I don't know how to, there's no formula in scripture that can point this out. I don't know specifics of what they are, but, but it sure seems to me that there are things that we do right now that will last all throughout eternity. There are things that we do that will not last. There will be continuity and there will be discontinuity. And I don't know specifically how all that works out, but I know that in your work right now, There are some things that you are doing at this present moment where you are partnering with God. You are satisfied. You are doing it for the flourishing of all. And God will usher on into all of eternity and we'll look at and we'll say, yay, God. Fantastic, because it was starting in a garden, but it was always designed for a city. When this new city comes, there's work to be done. One application point, and I close with this story. Understanding all of this, here's what I want you to do. Work unto the Lord knowing that some of it will last um, for all of eternity. Rejoice knowing that right now um, your craft is being perfected. I can't help but wonder, and this is speculation right here, and so please, I want to be careful. I can't help but wonder, though, if God did not put things into you already that he had mapped out from the beginning of time that you will continue on into heaven and you will do these things with an even greater level of satisfaction and joy. So the man who walked up to Martin Luther after becoming a believer walks up and excited about his newfound conversion asks Luther, what it is that I should do now? And Luther asks him, well, what is it that you already do? I'm a shoemaker thinking that he might then need to get into missions or something else, Luther looks back at him and says, then make great shoes and provide them at a good price. I can't help but think if you are a shoemaker, you will be making shoes for all of eternity to to great delight. If you are a construction worker, I can't help but think that you will be building in heaven for all of the flourishing of everything. If you are a professional fisherman, you may be catching fish, I don't know. But let this thought sink in, that what you will be doing for all of eternity, God may have given you a head start on it right now. He may have placed specific gifts in you so that you could work for all of eternity with his glory in mind. You know what this means for me? It means Dave's got to find a new job. Because I'm not going to be in heaven. God, there's not going to be a time in which God's going to say, hey, you know what we really need right now? We need a good devotion. <laughs> hey, McNeely, can you come over here? Can you give us a devotion? Can you create a story that will point us to Jesus? My job as a pastor is always to point you to Jesus. That is the primary work that God has given me. And I do that hopefully in counseling. Hopefully I do that when I meet with you in person. Hopefully I do that when I preach. At all times I should be pointing you to Jesus because Jesus is what you need. And when you and I get to glory, there's no longer a need for me to point you to Jesus because Jesus is standing in the center of all existence. And everything that you do at that moment will be to his delight, to his glory. You will be in in full view of him and you will say, hallelujah, here's the savior, here's the king. There's no need for a pastor. But there's great need for what you do. So you work as unto the Lord. 
knowing that God will redeem it, renew it, restore it. When we get there, you're going to be finally fulfilled. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for what it is that you have done um, on our behalf. And so, Lord, we ask um, that you would fill us with the proper vision. God, if there are things that I have said here this morning that are not true, then I pray that you would erase them from our minds forever to be lost and forgotten. But God, if there are things that are here that are from you, I pray that you would bury them deep within our hearts. Help us to become doers of your word rather than just hearers only. Jesus, thank you for redeeming. Thank you for guaranteeing that the story ends well. And it ends with you. We love you. For all these things in your name. Amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.